Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. And if you don't have an English Standard Version, which is the version I'll be looking at, and you would like to look at the same version, tab one does have the text in the ESV in your seminar booklet. Just for my own uh, information and calculation, I'd like to know how many of you serve in vocational ministry. Now, I just mean any kind of parachurch or pastoral work. Just raise your hand if you're in any kind of vocational ministry. Thank you very much. I do hope you feel refreshed as everybody else does. We all need as shepherds to go out to pasture And uh, I hope this is a green one for you. I read the statistics of the ages that are here. And uh, you don't look as old as they say you are. Um, But that may be because I am. Um. But it did incline me to to pray a certain way and to think a certain way about our gathering together here. Um, Let me read you a verse. Some of you folks are as old as I am. Uh, The statistics are that 320 of you are over 50 and 190 of you are over 60. There's There's a psalm that relates to that and it has meant a lot to me. Uh, for a long time. And it's uh, Psalm 78. I'm sorry, 71. And I'm just going to allude to it. We're not going to linger here, but verse 18. Maybe start at 17. Oh, God. From my youth, you have taught me and I shall proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me. Until I proclaim your might to another generation for your power, your power to all those to come. I really want to do that. I want to finish doing that because I have seen much of God's goodness and power and grace. And I want to leave a legacy of proclaiming your might to another generation. So well over half of you are my generation or older. And what I'm praying is that for the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and probably older. They didn't list the 80 plus number. Um, For those of us in that category, these five hours, these three days would be very surprising in terms of how they shape our remaining days. Indeed, I'm praying that you will be stunned at what the Lord calls you to do. Some of you have come wondering if that might happen because he's been loosening your roots for some time and you're not sure what the next chapter is supposed to look like. And others of you feel totally settled where you are. You've retired, you got the house, and you think you are where you are going to stay. And you aren't. And I am eager to see the Lord surprise you with a chapter in your life that you never dreamed. I'll just give you an example. I just laid my daddy to rest March 6th down in Greenville. And his life ended in a most absolutely unexpected and glorious way from the time he was in his late 50s until the day he died at 87. My dad was a full-time evangelist and some of you know was on a 
trip to Israel, leading maybe 30 or so in a tour, when there was a bus accident in which my mother was killed. And um, Daddy was seriously wounded and, uh, and recovered. And that next chapter of his life was totally different than he expected. He, he sold the house. He remarried. I did the wedding a year later. He was married for 25 years to Levon. Then I did her funeral. Then I did his funeral. And those last years, he became a um, global minister without leaving the country because of this ministry he developed called ROGMA, R-O-G-M-A, Rod of God Ministries. And the A stood for America, Asia, Africa, and whatever other continent or land began with A. And he never dreamed when his wife was taken from him at age 56 that the last decades of his life would be in terms of a global ministry through written Bible study lessons. And you don't know what the Lord may be calling you to do. So I just have in my mind, uh, even though I love to speak to students and my audiences are usually a lot younger than this, including at my own church, I do not think that this is an accident that we're together. Okay. So just. Be listening, you 50, 60, 70 somethings. If you think you've got a year left, it may be a totally different year than you think it will be. Because God simply uh, calls in remarkable ways, remarkable times. I could tell you stories of decisive turns in my life, sitting in worship under the ministry of the word. That's where the Lord seems to clarify the future for me. I labor alone with him. Tell me, tell me, show me. And it generally shows up in corporate worship. Strange. Which is why I put a huge priority on what uh, Steve and Vicki are doing for us here in simply getting us into the gospel in song. Well, we have before us Romans 12 and Romans 13. And I'll tell you, I'm really struggling. I preached uh, three. 150 pages of sermons on these two chapters. It took me six years to get through chapters 1 to 11, and then two years to finish the book, and about um, 30 sermons on these two chapters. And I must condense that into five hours, which I'm finding extremely difficult to do. And And when we're done tonight, your conclusion will be he gave up (laughs) because we're only going to cover a half a verse in this first session. And my biggest fear is that some of you are going to write letters back to the Billy Graham Association and say, I came to figure out what the end of chapter 13 was about. And he only gave us whatever I decide to give you. And uh, so pray for me. I, I really I'll be up late tonight trying to figure out how to adjust these things. We will pick up the pace, but I'm serious that uh, we will not get beyond verse one tonight. But I will read the first two verses. <laughs> I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. By the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. One of the reasons I feel Okay, spending probably the first two hours on those two verses is because if you get those two verses, the rest will follow. I mean, if if they really come true for us, that we will be able to discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable for if you can do that and you approve of it, not just 
prove and know what it is, but approve of it and embrace it and do it, I will have accomplished more than I could imagine because the Holy Spirit will have done his work. So I am going heavy on verses one and two, and then we will move more quickly through the rest of it. The, as you might imagine, a most important word to focus on in verse one is the word therefore. Because when you use the word therefore, it means what follows is being built on something. And if we don't understand that the the practicalities of chapter 12 and 13 are built on something, we will become first class legalists. And so it's dangerous to jump into Romans at verse at chapter 12, when 11 chapters have gone before, Paul is moving from something to something, and the transition is marked with the word therefore. Now, let me just give you a couple of illustrations of what therefore means. After years of praying, years of planning, years of discussing, on October uh, April 28, 2003, our church voted to embrace a vision called Treasuring Christ Together and purchase a North Campus. Therefore, two weeks later, we bought a $5 million complex in Moundsview. Now, what that word therefore signifies is that that decision, that action to by that didn't come out of the blue. It didn't come from nowhere. It was built on something. Years of agonizing discussion and struggle and efforts to unify the people and seek the Lord and pray and talk and research. And then climactic vote, 300 and something to 39 opposed. And we moved. Therefore, we acted. So when you... When you act following a therefore, it's built on something. It's rooted in something. Here's another illustration. Um, One of the missionary women from our church, Linda Oatley, serves in Rio de Janeiro with street children. My wife and daughter went to Fortaleza, Brazil, for a short-term mission, and Linda came up to join them. She spoke Portuguese, and that would help. And one evening gathered the women together of the local church and those who were helping, and Linda gave her testimony. And the testimony is that uh, from the time she was a little girl, she wanted to be a missionary, and then she married a man, and he didn't. Indeed, he forsook the Lord, and he divorced her. And she was single for a very long time. And then at age 50, roughly, she realized her dream and applied and was accepted to do street ministry with kids in Rio. And she told that story to the women, how God had fulfilled her dream and overcome Divorce and given her the peace with singleness and fit her to care for kids. The next morning when the group gathered after she gave her testimony that night, the pastor's wife who had been in the uh, service hearing her testimony stood up and with tears, I was told by my wife, running down her face, said, My husband has always wanted to be a missionary to Chile from Brazil. And I have utterly resisted and said, no, I'm not interested. And last night, the Lord broke through all my resistance. And I am therefore ready to follow my husband into missions. So a therefore is rooted in something. It was rooted in a work of God the night before through a testimony of grace. And 
I cannot emphasize strongly enough that the therefore, I appeal to you, therefore, means that everything in chapter 12 and everything in chapter 13 is built on something. It's rooted in something. And we need very much to make sure we know that fact and know what that is. Paul is moving from doctrine to practice, from theology to ethics, what is true about God and Christ and salvation to what we do with it from foundation to application. That's what's happening here at this transition. Not that there's a clean line. There was a lot of application back in Chapter 6, there are implications everywhere, but this is Paul's typical way of shifting from a heavily doctrinal section of a letter over into a heavily practical or application level. Now, it may seem obvious to you, and hardly worth pointing out, that Christian living grows out of something. But it's not to be taken for granted today. For several reasons, for the multi-religious situation we find ourselves increasingly in in America, <clears throat> the biggest population in my neighborhood is it Somali, Islam. And this is a quote from an article that I read by uh, Herbert Hoffer on Hinduism. Now, I want you to just... Let the difference between Hinduism and Christianity at this point land on you so that you feel how not to be taken for granted, therefore, is. All right. This is the quote. The proper name of Hinduism is Sanatana Dharma or the eternal way of life. You can have whatever beliefs you like. But you are expected to live out Dharma. Your religion is expected to participate in the values and customs and organization of society. If a Hindu finds you to be a person of character and propriety, it does not matter to him much if you <clears throat> have differing theological beliefs. What matters first and foremost is that you are a person of Dharma. Within Hinduism itself... One can identify hundreds of different religious traditions. Now, Paul's worldview is totally different from that. Totally different. This, therefore, in verse 1, I appeal to you to live a certain way because something happened. And therefore, I'm making this appeal. Because something happened in history and something happened to you and God is a certain way, reality is a certain way, there is objective world view behind these two chapters. And it's signified by that word, therefore. Why? Why this kind of world? Why, why does God do it this way? Why has he set things up so that Paul would write 11 chapters of theology and then say, therefore, live a certain way. And the reason is this. The universe exists, we exist, and the Christian life exists in order to display God. To display the way he is, to display his attributes and his character and his greatness. I just finished reading the Psalms what, two days ago. If you read through the Bible with the discipleship reading plan that I do, you would have just finished reading the Psalms on the 25th. And Psalm 150 has that second verse. Praise God for his mighty acts. Praise him for his excellent greatness. Acts and excellent greatness. Mighty acts, excellent greatness. We exist both to say that to the world 
and to live in a way that makes God look like he's that way. There's a kind of life. There's a lifestyle that calls attention to the way God is. That's what these two chapters are about. Chapter 12, chapter 13 are about the way one lives if he would make God look like chapters 1 to 11. So the therefore is not there by accident. It's there because God has set up the world in such a way that we exist to live, to show something, to show something. And and that something you learn about, you experience, and then you live a certain way. Therefore, because of that, you live that way. So this therefore is rooted in a whole world view about how God has set up the universe to display the glory of his greatness and his grace. Say a little practical word here to parents. Raise your hand if you've ever been a parent or are one now. Good. Good. I've got kids from 34 to 11. And so I'm doing a lot of parenting I never thought I would do. I never thought I'd be a parent of an 11-year-old at age 61. And I never thought that I would still be parenting 34-year-old kids. (laughs) That ends at 18. Thank you. I got other plans. That was absolutely, totally Naive, as as anybody knows, our biggest issues are in front of us. So a word to parents about this worldview. This, therefore, in verse one, means that when you want your children to act a certain way, some's got to precede that. So that when you tell them, you can say, therefore, do this. Because, you know, the most common question a kid asks, why? That's what this is about. Why do you want us to do chapter 12? Why do you want us to do chapter 13? It's because of that, that, therefore, this. And you know how many parents say, just do it. I said so. Now, I admit After about 30 wives, it's good to say, I said so. That's a good reason. I'm your father. I'm your mother. I said so. You do it. We talk about the wives tomorrow. However, if that becomes the dominant rearing motif, every why this kid asks, he gets simply authority. He will not be a Christian. Or his Christianity will be what it is in many places. You do things because you're told to do them. They don't grow out of anything. They're not built on anything. They're not rooted in anything beautiful and glorious that might make it come joyfully and freely and spontaneously. You just do it. Hell is out there. I don't want to go there. Mom and dad said live this way. That's not Christianity. So this, therefore, has a parenting philosophy in it. We do with our kids chapters 1 to 11. We live chapters 1 to 11. We teach chapters 1 to 11. We sing chapters 1 to 11. My wife and I uh, way overdue, what, two years ago maybe, began to sing together with our daughter. Isn't that sad? We we waited so long. We didn't sing with the boys when they were growing up. We sang at church. I love to sing. I'm a singer. I can't sing, but if there's a big enough crowd, I'll really sing. I love to sing. But it just seems weird to sing with my wife. Neither of us is good singers. If you heard us, you'd say, I can see why he didn't sing. That's no excuse, folks. 61, start over. Okay, so we do that now, and we printed out the songs, a lot of songs that we like. Like, I will glory in my Redeemer, and others. And now we we sing them with Talitha. And one of the reasons I 
bit the bullet and say, I can't do this. This is right. This is who I am. This is who God is. It's because I want her life to flow out of worship. I want her life to flow out of not just do it, but rather a whole world view. Give an example. Okay, we're on vacation. Take as long as we want for devotions. This is great. Devotions in the morning as a family. Devotions in the evening as a family. Kneel with my wife before I go to bed. Glory. This is great. So we are reading through Luke and we're in chapter 12 and there is a a do in chapter 12 like fear not. Now, there's a do. So I want I'm the dad. I'm a teacher here and I want my little girl to grow up and be a fearless woman. And so we read verses four to what nine or so. I think I wrote it down. I can't remember. Next few verses. And it says, Don't be afraid. Three times. Three times. And I said, Now, Talitha and Noel, let's pray that God would take fear out of our lives. And let's root our fearlessness in the reasons given. My mind is working this way because of this. Therefore, I'm not saying don't be afraid, period, or don't be afraid because I said so. I'm saying don't be afraid because something here's something. Therefore, don't be afraid. And there are three reasons. You know what they are? First one's real scary. Talitha didn't laugh. The first one is fear not. They can only kill you. That's what it says in verse five. Do not fear those who kill the body and after that have no more, no more that they can do. They can't do anything after they've killed you. So don't be afraid. And when I asked her that, I said, now, does that argument work with you? Tell she's sitting on the couch here by me. She's 11 years old. I said, does that argument work? No. I said, well, what what would what would Jesus be assuming? If he said Don't be afraid of those who kill the body, because after that, they have nothing more that you can do. What would he be assuming? And the answer is, there's a hell. And if you belong to Jesus, you won't go there. So they're done. They've done their worst. They've sent you to heaven. You don't need to be afraid. Yes, there's a hell. That's part of the worldview. It says, fear him who can cast both soul and body into hell. But you don't have to be afraid because if you belong to Jesus, you don't go there. You go to heaven. And so enjoy Jesus and risk your life. 70 year old, 11 year old, 30. The next argument is. He knows the number of hairs on your head. And the next argument is. You're more value than many birds. And he knows when every one of them falls out of the tree. Three arguments. Therefore, don't be afraid. I want my little girl. She's going to forget all those details. She'll have to read it again and again and again. But what she won't forget, if I do it often enough, is there's a worldview here. There's reality. There's Christ. There's cross. There's gospel. There's God. There's heaven. There's hell. There's grace. Therefore, live a certain way. And it's freedom. It's fearless. That's the, that's the feel I want her to get as she grows up in this home and that I want us to have here. So this, therefore, is very, very important. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. This next phrase. I haven't gone back to pick up what the roots are yet. That's coming. But I want to make sure the next phrase gets on here. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Now, that phrase, I appeal to you by the mercies of God, is Paul's shorthand summary of what came before in this book. He could have just said, I appeal to you, therefore, Present your bodies and the therefore would be all of chapters one to eleven is the basis of my appeal to present your bodies as living sacrifices. But instead of leaving us to guess what the summary of chapters one to eleven is. 
Paul chooses a little phrase for us. And frankly, I'm amazed at his choice. He has talked about God's wrath, God's righteousness, God's judgment, the fall, sin, death, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, justification, coming of the Holy Spirit into our lives, sanctification, keeping us, absolute sovereignty, chapter 9, faithfulness to his elect and to Israel. And of all of that, he chooses to say, and what I mean when I say I appeal to you, therefore, on the basis of everything, is I'm appealing to you by the mercies of God. Everything I've said, I mean to sum up under the heading, the mercies of God. Why would that be? Why would he choose to sum up chapters 1 to 11 in the phrase, my appeal now for these next two chapters and all their practical import, my appeal is rooted in the mercies of God. Three reasons. Number one, he explains in chapter 15 that the purpose of life, of mission, of God, is to glorify his mercy. Look at 15, 8, and 9. Chapter 15, 8 and 9. I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. In order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Christ became a servant to the circumcised. That is, he was incarnate as a Jew in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. The purpose of God in sending his son was that all the nations might be amazed at his mercy. That's the reason you exist, is to make People amazed at the mercy of God. To live in such a way that people can only conclude off of your life. God is merciful. That's the first reason. It's the goal of life. It's the goal of history. It's the goal of Christ. It's the goal of God that people would praise him for his mercy. Romans 15, 9. Second reason why he would choose to sum everything up with mercy. Mercy in your life towards the undeserving is the best way of life to make God look mercifully great. Mercy fleshed out in your life meaning treating people better than they deserve, is the best way for people to look at you and conclude your God is great in mercy. Now, the reason I conclude that is because if I just do a quick run through of chapter 12, listen to what I see. Verse 8 The one who does acts of mercy. Verse 9, let love be genuine. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Verse 15, weep with those who weep. Verse 16, associate with the lowly. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Verse 19, never avenge yourselves. Verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. You detect a motif? 
This chapter is saturated with mercy. The reason he's saying, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, is because mercy flowing out from us must be rooted in mercy. The, the lesson, the overarching huge lesson of chapters 1 to 11 is God treated us better than we deserved. And he still treats us better than we deserved. And he should shape us into a kind of people who are merciful people. So that's the second reason that he says, by the mercies of God, is because a lifestyle of mercy is the lifestyle that will best display the greatness of God as a merciful God. Third reason. God's mercy to us is the key to our living this way. So now let me take those three reasons and show you how they fit together. Goal, that he be praised for his mercy, 15.9. Way or lifestyle that displays his mercy so people can glorify it. Chapter 12. And ground or root or cause is his mercy toward us. In Christ. So chapter 11 ended. Chapters 1 to 11 ended from him, through him and to him are all things to him be glory, which I think could be paraphrased from him. We got mercy through him. We're living mercy to him. We will glorify him for mercy To him be glory for being merciful. That's the summary. So I'm going to linger on this third one and go back and do what we simply must do in this first hour. And that is talk about what happened so that Paul could not say, therefore, live this way. Therefore, live this way. What should we be saying to our children? What should we be saying to our churches? What should we be preaching to ourselves every day if our lives would be transformed into this kind of merciful lifestyle that gives its enemies food and drink? It isn't simply that Christ was a good example of mercy. He was. Nobody was a better one ever than Christ, because from the beginning, his life was a scandal to the end. His life was a scandal, and he embraced that scandal freely so that we could be spared the ultimate scandal of condemnation. So he was mercy incarnate, saving us when we deserve the exact opposite. So let's go back to chapter three. We just need to spell it out lest we take it for granted. It's too great and too good not to see what he did. Mercy implies two things, the way Paul is using it here. You know, sometimes we distinguish mercy and grace, and that's appropriate sometimes. And the difference is that grace is treating someone better than they deserve. That is, grace is a loving response to guilt. Mercy is treating someone who is in pain or suffering or misery. So you can show mercy to a dog. You can't show grace to a dog. The dog has no guilt. The dog just has got a broken leg. He can take it to the vet. That's merciful. We humans need both. We are guilty and in desperate need of grace, and we are miserable and weak and need compassion. In fact, um, let me read that verse from chapter 5. Five, uh, six and eight, six to eight. So you can hear both. 
I think Paul is using the word mercy to cover both here in Romans 12, 1. Chapter 5, verse 6. While we were still weak. So now there's there's the dog factor. We've we got broken legs everywhere. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, no dog was ever a sinner. Only humans are sinners. I guess angels, too, are still are still sinners. Christ died for us. So the mercy we need is in response to our weak and helpless condition and our rebellious, sinful condition. Now, that's what chapter three, verses nine following describe. I should read a few of these verses to remind ourselves of what terrible condition we were in. What then? Three nine. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. That's all of us. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Not one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Now jump down to verse 19 and let him sum this up to see what condition we're in. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So all of these verses he's collected together here are spoken mainly to Jews so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world. So even though they're spoken to Jewish people, the implication is, is how much more then is every mouth stopped and the whole world made accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified. In the sight of God, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So let's just settle it. You will never meet anybody who's not responsible to and accountable to God. You'll never meet anybody who is righteous such that God would have to reward him in any good way for that righteousness. You'll never meet anybody who has done good in a way that could put him right with God. We have all sinned. In fact, if you want to get really radical with chapter 14, verse 23, all we do is sin apart from Christ. Because whatever is not from faith is sin. It's breathtaking. You know a lot of nice people who are not Christians. And all they ever do is sin. If you don't have a a view of human depravity that can explain nice people who disbelieve in Jesus, you need to go back to your Bible and understand the nature of evil. We've been absorbing the world's view of evil for a long time. (coughs) Namely, hurt people and you're evil. Treat people good, you're not evil. That is not the biblical definition of evil. Dishonor God by ignoring him, neglecting him, giving him 2% of your time. That's evil. That's an outrage worthy of everlasting destruction. Even if you express it in building hospitals. People rebel against God in all kinds of virtuous and unvirtuous ways. The Pharisees were squeaky clean. And vipers children. So we just need a very high view of sin. Low view of sin. Big, wise, deep, terrible view of sin. Because if we don't have it, we won't know what he's done for us. Or why he did it the way he did it. So that's where we are. We're all under the wrath of God, according to chapter 1, verse 18. And here we are under sin, all accountable to God. 
And now comes the best paragraph in the Bible, probably. Verse 21 following. Let's read, read it. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, that's the simplest statement to memorize. All have sinned. And what is sin? It is a trading away of the glory of God. Chapter 123 explains 323. They exchange the glory of God for images. And the one we exchange him for most today is the one we see in the mirror. So we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now here comes and are justified by his grace. You could say mercy as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be redeemed to be received by faith. Now, let's just stop there and take the three mega words. Justification, redemption, propitiation. You see those? They are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Let's just linger there because right here we're at the center of the gospel, the center of the good news, the center of the demonstration of the mercy of God in history on the basis of which Paul says, therefore, chapter 12, therefore, chapter 13. Let's do propitiation first. The word means to appease wrath. To take away wrath, to satisfy wrath. Chapter 1, verse 18 says that God's wrath was on the world. The biggest problem we have is the wrath of God. Not bad people, but angry God. That's our biggest problem. The wrath of God. So Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Curse of the law. Having become a curse. For us, as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So what does that mean? That means that a curse was on my head. Well, a curse has to be backed up with something for it to be dangerous. And what backs it up is God's anger. God has cursed me. Since the fall, I'm under a curse. And that curse is going to bring me to everlasting destruction. What what hope is there for me? None. There's nothing I can do. I can never be good enough. I've already done so much evil. And any good that I would try to do would simply take me down deeper. It cannot make me right with God. This curse is going to destroy me. And God puts forward His son as a propitiation, meaning a curse absorber, a condemnation absorber. Romans 8, 3. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned. Sin in the flesh. Whose sin? Mine. Whose flesh? Christ's. That's propitiation. His wrath was on me, and Christ stepped in and absorbed all that wrath on Calvary. That's what a propitiation does. He condemned my sin. Christ had no sin. 
What's this sin he's being condemned for? It's my sin. When I read that Stephen Vicky Cook were going to be the worship leaders here, my heart leaped up because these are gospel saturated worship leaders that some worship leaders simply sing about how great God is. And believe me, I love to sing about how great God is. But if we don't sing a lot about the blood and a lot about righteousness being imputed to us and a lot about the substitution. I think we're going to get a little cocky. The gospel is a back breaking message. It snaps the ego in half. It puts you flat on your face so that you don't strut around with your theology or with your your praise. You go down and you're brought up on eagle's wings like a baby and you sing. So propitiation is so precious to me. When I wrote the little book, 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die, that was number one. Bang! That's going right up there at the front. He absorbed God's wrath. Do you know, Christian, that there will never be a day from now to forever when God is wrathful with you? Ever. A father can spank his children, and God spanks us. But oh, what love it is. Right? That's what Hebrews 12 says. If you haven't known his discipline, you are loved. (laughs) So when you get spanked, embrace it. He's loving you. There will never be a moment when he's wrathful. It is on Jesus, which is why we just got to sing it. We got to love it. We got to get it underneath the to-dos of our children. I'm also doing another new thing with Talitha that I didn't do with my boys. Good night. I'd like to do it all over again. I sit on the side of her bed every night. Now, I had four. It's a little more complicated when you have to tuck four boys in. But but with her, she's getting it all. And I'm sitting on her bed, and I put my hand on her head, and I bless her. I bless her. The Lord bless you and keep you, Talitha. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you And then I usually draw something out of the devotions right there. Not just the same old word. Give you fearlessness as you grow up. Because then weave in some foundation, some propitiatory talk. There's something underneath this. I'm not just a, I'm not just an authority in your life. I got good news for you, little girl. It's the best news in all the world. It'll be gone someday and this news will be here. Underneath you. So propitiation number two, redemption. Let's get that word in front of us. All of sin, fall short of the glory of God, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The word redemption means uh, deliverance at the cost of a price. And we have been delivered from a lot of things, but Paul twice tells us what this word redemption means for him. One is in Ephesians 1, 7. The other is in Colossians 1. And Ephesians 1, 7 says, redemption, comma, the forgiveness of sins. So not only is wrath removed, and there's only a smiling face coming from our father now, not a wrathful judge, but a smiling father, but also all my sins are canceled, nailed to the tree, as Colossians 2.14 says. My guilt is removed. The weight and the burden of a lifetime of sinning in my head and sinning with my hands and sinning with my attitude is lifted. That's behind the therefore live this way. Therefore, be merciful. And third, and finally, justification. Verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, 
whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. To justify is to declare to have fulfilled everything required of you. Can you say it that way? I mean, there's a lot of ways to say it. I'm saying it that way. God, the judge, contemplates you, the sinner. You fly to Jesus, the substitute, the guilt remover, the wrath absorber, the righteousness provider, and you embrace him for all that he is. And then you make your plea to the judge. I'm trusting him, not me. Don't measure me. Don't look at me. I'm holding to Jesus. And that's a union has happened. And in that union with him, all that he did in fulfilling everything required of me is counted as mine. Look at chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. To the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts Righteous, apart from works. God, because of our union with Christ, because of our faith in Christ, counts us righteous. This is more than the removal of wrath. This is more than the forgiveness of sins. This is being viewed by God as having fulfilled everything required of us perfectly. And if you wonder, but how how can he do that? How, How can he count us as having fulfilled everything required of us when all we've done is the opposite almost? And there are Many verses that answer that. Look across the page, perhaps in your Bible, to chapter 5, verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made Righteous. I think that means by virtue of Christ's complete fulfillment of everything required of him, we, by faith and union with him, have that made over to us, counted as ours. So that when he counts us righteous, he is not simply declaring something, he's constituting something. He really is saying, I now count you as having a real moral rectitude that is flawless. Because my son lived that way, and when you join him, his becomes yours. So there's a lot of great theology in the worship songs that we have sung and We'll sing, and I love it when we extol those great truths. Now, drawing it to a close tonight, what's the implication of propitiation, redemption, and justification? I'm assuming, and I shouldn't, chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, apart from works, so this happens by faith, and faith is a reaching out, to receive a substitute and a cleaving to him, a trusting him, a treasuring him, looking away from ourselves to him so that all that he is, he is for us. That's what faith does. 
Now, when that happens and we are thus justified, wrath is removed, guilt is removed, sins are forgiven, we are absolutely secure. And that's what Romans 8 is all about. Let's just look very briefly at 8. Twenty-eight following. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So everything that happens in your life as a believer is working together for your good. Everything. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, I think that's virtually synonymous with election. He set his knowledge upon you before you were ever born. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So before you were born, God has set his electing favor upon you and he predestined you to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's the good that everything is working toward. Verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he called. Now, that's not a a Billy Graham call or a John Piper call. When Billy Graham calls or I call, some stay in their seats. When God calls, nobody stays in his seat. The reason we know that is from chap from first Corinthians one twenty three. The cross we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block to the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called the power of God and the wisdom of God, and those you've got three categories of people, Jews, Gentiles and called. The first stumble, the second say stupid and the others believe. Why do they believe? They're called. This is a thou shalt believe call. Come into existence call. Which is why the next phrase happens. I mean, have you ever wondered, how can he say, and those whom he called, he also justified? Well, it's only believers who are justified. And he says all the called are justified. Which means the call creates the belief. That's the only reason any of you believed. God spoke. Second Corinthians 4, 7. God spoke into your life. He said, you know, you were, you were going along and Christianity was totally boring. Going to church was a pain in the you know what. And suddenly, late one night, early one morning or whenever, Something changed. It became a little interesting and you opened your Bible and. And sooner or later, he had you. You didn't make that happen. I promise you. When you go to heaven. And he asks you. Why you're here. You you will answer. Because I believe in Jesus. And he'll say, right. Why did you and not your cousin? You don't want to at that point say, I'm smarter. (laughs) Or I'm more spiritual. You want to say, thank you. Just thank you. I don't know these mysteries, Lord. I'm not sure, but I just know if I had been left to myself, I would have gone straight to hell. And I thank you for holding me prone to wander. Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, oh God, and seal it, seal it for your courts above. That's what you did for me. And he'll get a big smile on his face and say, you just keep praising my grace. That's all we do in here. And you will have gotten used to it and you will you will love it. So those whom he called, he justified. 
and those whom he justified, he glorified. Which means it's as good as done. Therefore, wrath removed, guilt removed, sins forgiven. Righteousness and perfection provided. Therefore, live this way. Let me close like this. Have you ever asked the question, when did God become totally for me? At what point did God become totally for me and not against me? Now, you might answer, in eternity, because he chose me. That's not the right answer. Because we know that we were children of wrath until we were converted, according to Ephesians 2, 3. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. God became totally for you when you believed in Jesus by his grace. Totally for you. I mean, not one millimeter of against you. From that moment on, God does not have one micro ounce against you. All the omnipotence of the universe is for you and not against you, which means that the obedience to these dozens of imperatives in chapter 12 and 13, do not make him more for you than he was before you obeyed. It's so crucial. If we don't get that, if we don't realize that our obedience that we're going to be talking about now for four hours together, all this obedience that's calling to us from these chapters is being performed in us and for us because God is for us, not in order to get God to be for us. Oh, that as you go to bed tonight, you might lie down and sleep like a baby. Because he is totally for you. And if you brought some dread disease with you, or if you're in some horrific relational crisis, you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt, he's got it under control. And he's totally for me. It's going to work out for my good. Then maybe in these next four hours, we will be able to have the kind of freedom and liberty to know how to be the merciful people he's calling us to be because something happened. Let's pray. Father, we've, we've spent a long time on this therefore, but I believe it's the most important thing to see in the whole weekend. And so I pray that you would apply the gospel to us. Open our eyes to see it with Fresh vision, I pray. And then fit us now with this deep confidence and this deep security in Christ alone to become who we are in Christ, to become what these chapters call us to be. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.